Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cent. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Joanna joins us once again uh, for parenting. Joanna, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sean. Now, first question is this. I hope you can help me with my 10-year-old daughter. She's the oldest of three. She's energetic, caring, imaginative, doing well in school and still does a lot of imaginative play with her brother. In 2020, we lost my dad and a little boy in her school, two years younger than her, that who also passed away both with cancer. Since then, very often when she goes to sleep, a lot of worries come up, especially schoolwork worries and fear of getting cancer and dying. She can take very long to fall asleep and she's the first one to get up. She doesn't watch screens at all in the evening or we always do the same routine. And when she comes and shares her worries, we always talk about it and find a way of reassuring her. How can I help her to find a way that we can help her find a bit more peace for a little worried mind? Oh, it's a lot though, isn't it? You know, there has been, you know, this is a a worry with context, you know, and I always say, is there context to the worry there is here? Because, you know, you all lost your dad, her granddad. And then the idea that a child can also die is very, it's difficult for all of us, but it's very difficult for other children to get their heads around because often, especially um, in younger years, children associate dying with older people because that tends to be their lived experience. But between nine and 12 years old, so exactly where she is, children tend to more fully understand the finality of death, along with realizing that death can also include them. So developmentally, that was all happening. And then there's the realization with real experiences that death is final and it can happen to children like me because she didn't just develop that awareness. She lived it as well. I think that may have triggered some fears and anxieties about loss. And that's what you're seeing play out here. So there is context to it. And what I love in this is that she still does a lot of imaginative play, that she is imaginative, that you can use some of that imaginative play to play out scenarios, to help her explore her fears and bring them to a deeper level. So playing out little scenarios, I don't mean literally scripting a scenario about death, but just playing out things about feelings, thoughts, not being able to sleep, what would help to sleep, using little toys or imaginative stories, that could be very helpful for her. I think how you're talking about that, you know, she brings her worries to you. Great. Fantastic that she does that. And you always talk about it and find a way of reassuring her. This is really good, but try to stay with acceptance and empathy for her because these are very sad losses and her fears have context. So when you sit with her, instead of rushing to, I'm not saying you are, but try to avoid rushing to reassurance because reassurance is so natural as parents, but it comes from that place of wanting to rescue our children from the difficult feelings. Mm. Avoid minimizing or dismissing, oh, look, that this person was sick or that person, this won't happen very often. It may be true, but it can deny our children the opportunity to work through their feelings. Instead, sit with her, bear witness to those, allow her to speak or draw or think or play about her feelings without you rushing in to go, are you better now? Are you better now? Because Mm. it just means that she holds on to a little bit of it. The other thing I would say here, Sean, is there are 
you know, maybe ask your school or your local community centre, community resources about a rainbows group. You know, rainbows, uh, I think the website is just rainbowsireland.ie, but rainbows is a, it's a voluntary group and it's about supporting children through peer support, i.e. in little groups with other children who have experienced loss. And that might be something, it's a programme, you know, it has a clear beginning, middle end, and it that might be a resource that she could avail of in your local locality and that could give her some 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 support i would also say around grief bereavement any worries about death bernardos have good resources bernardos.ie about that on their websites as well yeah i suppose a parent will want to know i know and i know it's a how long is the beast's strain question but like when might this end for her when would she come to you know some sort of settlement with the uh, with the grief and and i suppose also the the idea of her own mortality yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There isn't, I'd love to say, oh, that's a three month thing there that'll mm. be done. That's not the way it works. And I think it's been a very particularly difficult time for children. So worries have been amplified. I don't want to go down the route of blaming COVID or the pandemic on everything because it's not true, but it, it has served to amplify any other worries because, you know, there has been, you know, ruptures, disruption to relationships, connections, and things have just left them with a breadcrumb trail of worry. So other worries can feed off that. I would say, you know, like I said, this she's in that developmental swing of really grappling with a deeper understanding of death. That doesn't just end at 12, but it does refine itself and children gradually gain more mastery over it. But she is in that at the moment. I would certainly be looking at her it's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? Really talk about when I was just going to say, just talk about death. But that's actually very difficult to do um, in a family because it's a difficult subject for us parents, us adults as well. So I would say that you just go at her pace, let her set the pace for this. And if it was something you found she was ruminating or if anyone else is listening, go, oh, my child does this. But they, if I open that door, they're going to ruminate all night about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you say that we've we've got this amount of time to talk about our worries or tonight we're going to talk about three worries and then we're going to talk about other worries tomorrow so that you're structuring it. I don't mean, you know, coming out of going, what's your three worries and you must have three, but just saying, look, we're going to sit and talk about our worries and think about them together. And we're going to do that for X amount of minutes or until all the sand hits the bottom of the sand timer, until the big hand gets to number two or whatever it is that you structure it so that you're putting a boundary on it. It doesn't sound in this letter like she's going on and on and on about it. In fact, she sounds quite a lot like a self-holding child that she's holding quite a bit of it herself and then bringing it to parents because it's gotten too big for her to hold. And then knowing my parents will help me work through this. I would give it time if it was to linger, though, Sean, you know, just to if it was to linger or escalate or begin to have a more pervasive impact on sleep disruption or socialization or her eating or anything like that, I would consider bringing her to see a professional where she can work that out in the space that is her own. Often our children, you know, they shield us parents from some of their big feelings, particularly when it's about grief and it was your dad who died. They give us a bit, but they don't want to give us too much because they don't want to upset us. Mm, because uh, no doubt you probably saw or inferred at the very least that Mammy was very sad as well. Of course, of course. And that's, you know, it's okay that our children would know we're upset about a loss. You know, it really gives them a a context and a normalisation that being upset at an upsetting time is healthy and normal. But it can also lead to our children protecting us. Yeah, 
Oh, God loves the little one. Right, could you ask Joanna about building up self-esteem in a seven-year-old? He's very critical of himself and berates himself for making any little mistake. As parents, we have really tried to build up his confidence and not pushy or perf- or perfectionistic. Uh, encourage mistakes, praise effort, etc. I feel like we must be doing something wrong for this to be the case. As, apart from this, he's social, happy and getting on well in school. Teacher thinks he's great, but lacking in confidence and dislikes being the focus of attention. Oh, it's such an interesting one. And I, I totally get why a parent would say, look, it's not us. We're not doing it. We didn't do this to him because I think it is something that we always look at. Like, who else in the family is perfectionist? Because perfectionistic, that's a hard word to say, yes, parents, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, per- perfectionistic, I'm going to say it many times now, parents tend to expect perfectionism in others, especially if they are, you know, other oriented perfectionists. And it's worth kind of taking a pause to think about that. Other oriented perfectionism is where you have high, even unrealistic standards for others. But self-oriented perfectionism is when you would have those same high, very unrealistic standards for yourself. But then we'd also have what we call socially prescribed perfectionists, which is where somebody holds the belief that Other people or society at large have unrealistic expectations for them. Okay, so it could be my teachers expect too much. That's why I'm under pressure. My parents expect too much. My football coach expects too much, whatever it is. So this little guy, when just to reassure the parents, like don't immediately assume everyone thinks it's coming from you. He does sound like a self-oriented perfectionist, that the high standards he has are for himself. And look, When we say high standards, just to be clear, it can be really good for children to want to do well. But perfectionism is not the same as doing well. Perfectionism can deny us any sense of satisfaction. Like even when we do well, it's almost like, well, I didn't really deserve that or that was luck. Or if I did that well, imagine what I could have done if I worked even harder. It's you Mm -hmm. never really feel satisfied with it. So you have this kind of unrealistic goals corresponding enormous pressure that you put under yourself and then difficulty enjoying the achievement even when you do like I don't deserve it so it's it's an it's not a nice thing at all because I know I sometimes hear and this is funny this is coming up here with such a young child because in the last couple of weeks largely because it's mocks season and coming up to the leaving cert and the junior cert um, a lot of kids are putting themselves under huge pressure to fill the gaps that they've experienced over the last couple of years with with education as well and when a parent says to me oh they were up all night studying that's not something to be proud of nobody should have to be up all night or spending hours at homework you know it should be something that is doable in a set period of time and enables you to go and live your life beyond it but when you're talking about someone with these kinds of perfectionistic tendencies even getting 9 out of 10 isn't good enough because the focus will be on the one you didn't get mm-hmm. and it people can ruminate and dwell on it so it's very stressful and it's not pleasant at all I think what you're doing so far is really really good with it you know you're saying he's sociable happy and getting on well in school all great Now, when the teacher says, yeah, he's great, but he lacks confidence. Well, when you don't feel you deserve your achievements and nothing you do is good enough, of course, you lack confidence because you're giving yourself internally such a hard time all of the time. So focus outside of school, around school, activities that are participation rather than achievement based. Think of things like volunteering, participating in a local community cleanup, um, activities like scouts things that are just about participating, just turning up, getting involved, having fun, enjoying being together, 
but you're not earning, winning or setting yourself big goals around. And outside of that, focus on modeling and practicing healthy self-talk at home, how you speak about yourself in front of him when he might say something um, berating. You're saying here, you know, like he, he's quite tough on himself, berates himself about making little mistakes. You know, talk about how great mistakes are. We could all do it a reminder of that, actually, um, that making mistakes is how we learn and it's how he's going to learn. How exciting that mm. you made a mistake. And you know what? You caught it. You caught your mistake. And that means you're going to learn something new. That's really great. So you're doing that all of the time and not just saying it's OK to make mistakes, but being very specific about why they're a good thing, because now you've learned something new and really put that into practice on a daily basis. When he does bring home good results and really good work, it's not that you ignore that, but you really zone in on the effort. You worked so hard. I know this means a lot to you. Look at how neat your handwriting is. Look at how and you focus at the effort that went into it more than the outcome. And then you might want to think about practicing some healthy coping skills to help him manage disappointment frustration and and the associated stress of holding himself to these high standards at the moment where he can write about them and he could write about what was his best thing what thing would he like to change um help him to track what what you know i'm going to talk about these little micro moments of joy in his day the little small small little things that go well when you know his favorite cartoon happens to be on when he turns on tv or you know when you know, in my house, it would be whoever gets to the heel of the toes. That would be their moment to go. Yes, I got it. You know, all those little yes moments help him to really track those, identify those and name them with and for him, because what you're doing is you're amplifying micro mo micro moments of joy and helping him to focus on how little things are what matter and they can go really, really well just to build up that internal positive system for himself. Yeah. Completely off the point, but it's interesting that in your house the the heel of the the, the loaf is <laughs> is a valued thing. In many in many, it's not. I like it, but many in oh, we would nearly arm wrestle in this house about the heel of the bread. So yeah, right. yeah, it's, it's okay. a big one. Uh, it's just <laughs> a loaf of heels. <laughs> it's just left for me uh, in my house. It also kind of leapt out at me that the the person who wrote in said, uh, "I feel like we must be doing something wrong." Uh, are they maybe being a bit hard on themselves there? Yeah, and I think maybe that's the piece I'm getting to when I talk about model healthy self-talk, because you're giving yourself a hard time about this. You're berating yourself that you've done something wrong. So just be aware of that. Sometimes we do these things as parents and we're not even really aware that we do it. You're not doing anything wrong. You are actually really aware of his struggle. You've spoken to his teacher about it. You're keeping an eye on it. You're really trying to positively reframe a lot of his own behaviors to try and change them with and for him. You're actually doing a whole lot right. So you just happen to have a self-oriented perfectionist as a child. Now, do have a little think yourselves about was anyone you know like this as a child? Um, is anyone at home a bit like this as an adult? And you might be actually not consciously aware of it. But by bringing awareness, you can say, you know, I need to speak a little more out loud about doing well and about being kind to myself. And I think it's it's really about continuing what they're doing, you know, celebrate mistakes, effort over outcome. But I do think pursuing Sean some activities that are participation rather than achievement focused would help him as well, just to find the joy in doing. Yeah. 
a uh, few comments on on that. Uh, uh, people who call themselves perfectionists usually just look for perfection from other people and not so much from themselves. It's easier that way. Well, it's not always the case. Uh, Dan says, my father was a bit of a projecting perfectionist. When I got my master's, the first thing he said to me was, now you've made up for that. Now you've made up for that leaving search. Uh, <laughs> dad. Oh, dad. Great one, dad. And uh, Brian says, surely getting the heel of the toast is a micro moment of crushing despair. There you go. People have different. Not in this house. See, Not... everybody's different. Yes. So, uh, right. You are listening to the Moncrief Show and News Talk. We do have to take uh, a break. After that, uh, a child who won't eat any fruit or vegetables. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. John of Fortune is still with us. Next question is this This is for our grandson, age seven, and his parents who, given their permission to contact you, they live in Asia. Our grandson refuses to any fruit, eat any fruit or vegetables. And <laughs> some parents are going to go, Oh, what? What? He will eat this. <laughs> what he will only eat is egg fried rice and salmon teriyaki. His uh, mum and dad have tried to give him control by asking him to select two or three fruits or veg that he will eat, but this is not working out as planned. We're wondering if he might perhaps have some sensory issues about food. He's a healthy, active, slim child, gets plenty of exercise, drinks plenty of water. However, he does get constipated, which is worrying. There is no apparent medical issue, such as allergy to certain foods. And I assume, you know, a trip to the GP or a medical exploration around the constipation has been done as well, just to make sure, because, you know, if you're prone to recurring constipation, it can lead to feelings of fullness, can't it? Mm. You know, and it might have affected his diet. Now, I I agree with you, Sean, like a lot of parents will go egg fried rice and salmon teriyaki. I wish my child would eat it. But (laughs) the point here is that that's all he's eating. And I think that's what's very stressful because he's seven as well. Now, my big thing about food, and I do want to emphasize I'm not a dietitian and pediatric dietitians are absolutely experts in this. And again, just to flag to these parents, you could get a consult, even online consult with a pediatric dietitian who will help you around you know I guess what they call food chaining and food chaining is that you take what your child eats and then you extend from it so for example and this might be quite a basic example but just taking the egg fried rice so from that you could try him with single serving scrambled egg just the scrambled egg. Um, In egg fried rice, you may or may not have things like peas, carrots, corn. You could put those out on a plate separate to the rice so that he's eating maybe scrambled egg and peas and carrots and corn and egg fried rice, you know, so that you just deconstruct it really into its components. And then you could reconstruct those components into an omelet. You know, he already eats the things that are in there. You're just representing them in a different way to broaden out his diet. Example, if the fried rice is white, could you do it with brown rice and then from there go into other grains? So there are, be it quinoa or couscous or whatever it is you want to use. So you take it from a food chaining perspective and that can be really useful. Um, You could also do things like, you know, with the the teriyaki salmon, maybe make a fish cake that's made with potato and you give it to that or bread the the little fish bits and bake them and serve it that way. So you've got the salmon, you know, he eats, but you're now serving it in different ways to broaden out his diet. And once you've done that, introduce cod or then chicken or whatever way you want to do it. So it's step by step. And remember, it takes 
you know, up to 10 exposures to a new food to accept it. And that's not just for children. That would be for all of us. If you're very resistant to a food, but you really want to condition or train yourself to eat it, it takes 10 exposures for your body to say, well, that's not poison and it's not actually going to kill me. I can't take it. So don't give up at the first hurdle. It's very hard when you're a parent, oh, you know, and yeah. you've made the and they put the meal down and they're like, eh, I don't want it. I won't eat it. And you're like, oh, God. or maybe you've gone ahead and batch cooked it and filled your freezer with it. And now you're going to be eating little egg muffins or whatever it is for, for months to come. But just to keep with it that, OK, that's exposure one. We'll keep going, keep going. Make sure that each meal he has has two courses, you know, so there's something he is going to eat. That doesn't mean, by the way, a lovely dessert after everything. That could be your meal and fruit or starting with a yogurt, then the meal, just something that there's two courses. And I would suggest with him, again, just as a gentle invitation to try something new, but you all do it, that you get a teaspoon and put something new on the teaspoon. It's only a teaspoon worth. Don't put it touching anything on the plate because lots of people are funny about that. Uh, just put it to the side so that then you pick it up, you try it and you move on and you don't overemphasize whether he does or does not do it. It's an invitation to try a new food. Mm. I mean, you could also do things like, you know, you can get one of those plates that are broken down into your protein, your carb and your veg fruit section on the plate. And there's pictures of each. And you could say, well, we have to put something in each section. So and whatever he's missing out on, he can like you're doing select two or three fruits or veg. Even if he will do a teaspoon worth of them, I do it whatever way you come at this avoid an emotional charge around food because, you know, he's eating egg fried rice and salmon teriyaki. I fully empathize, you know, with the parents frustration or worry or concern that it's the same thing all the time. It could be worse, says a lot of parents listening. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not living on chips or chicken nuggets only. And, you know, I hear about that quite a bit. So it, it could be worse. It certainly could be better, but it's just build on it gradually without making mealtimes a battle, because when there's an emotional charge around food that just opens up and creates a whole new level of difficulty and problem that you really do want to avoid. Yeah. You know, when you put it in front of them, they've never had it before and they say, I don't like that. You shouldn't really say but you've never had it because that doesn't really make any difference, I assume. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, they, they don't they don't care for your logic in those yes. moments. Um, you know, they, they're going, well, that's true. But like, the reason I haven't had it is I don't like it. And he's seven. <laughs> so he's going to be tricky to kind of. But you could say, well, it's just an invitation to try something new because it's exciting to try new foods. Not it's good for you or you have to do it or all of those things that kids immediately put resistances up to. I mean, if he was more open to it or gradually coming from it, you could, you know, do play do some play with taste testing games but make sure they're nice don't put anything like that was a lemon suck that that's really sour you know so put in nice things and so that he actually thinks it's actually exciting and worthwhile to try new things right. um but i would build up gradually to that yeah <laughs> very gradually uh my three-year-old daughter is reluctant to hug me ever she hates it i don't know why she seems so uninterested in it but it makes me sad that she doesn't want to I've tried asking her to hug me and counting to 10 while she does, but she is nearly running away from me by the time I get to six or seven. Is there a way to make her more reciprocal and open to physical affection? Oh, to make her, I'm not sure. Um, mm. The other thing is, this is a good example of consent in action. You've asked her for the hug. She's given you the answer. No, I don't want to. And then it's really about respecting her boundary to show her that 
her no, her choice is heard and respected. So I, you know, coming at this in a couple of ways, I mean, there are, you know, when you say she hates hugging, I, I don't know, is this particular to this parent writing in or does the child dislike hugging in general? Because it could, some people don't like, they might describe themselves, I'm not a huggy person. You know, you often hear adults say mm. that. But actually what it could be is a sensory discomfort with that kind of tight, squeezy or very close physical proximity that a hug involves. And no, thanks. But if she will show you affection in other ways, like a high five, a wave, a, an elbow tap, a little shimmy matching dance, you know, or will she, you know, allow a kiss on the cheek or you could do many even different kinds of kisses. You know, you could do Eskimo kisses, rubbing your noses together, bring your eye to her cheek and just blink up and down and it flutters like a little butterfly kiss. There are lots of ways that you can show affection that are not hugs. And what comes across here, and again, this isn't judgment, it's more observation, is that you're the one who really wants the hug. You want to receive it. You want to give it to her. Mm. You want to have that. And of course you do. And I think some of that disappointment is yours. There's nothing wrong with your daughter. It's just that it's disappointing that you're not getting to express affection in the way that you are most comfortable doing it. But I think together you could find a way that she is equally comfortable receiving and giving affection. Um, you know, I, I, what's coming to my mind when we talk about hugs is that book by Owen McLaughlin, The Hug, you know, where it's it's two sided. It starts with the hedgehog on one side. And if you flip it over and open it on the other side, it's a turtle. And nobody wants to hug the hedgehog because he's spiky or the turtle because the shell is hard. But they meet in the middle and they're the perfect combo for a hug. But he wrote another book uh, actually during the pandemic time. But even outside of pandemic, you could take it as a as a useful uh, foundation stone for exploring what she is comfortable with because it's called While We Can't Hug. And in it, the little hedgehog and the turtle are finding lots of ways of expressing affection without touching. Because don't forget, she's three years old. Her life has been around not touching, not hugging, washing hands, don't touch, don't mm. do... So, you know, and I'm not saying that's the only reason, because actually lots of people don't like hugs and that's OK. And it is OK for her to say no. But bear in mind that that's what she has grown up in is a society that has been touch avoidant. So a little bit of tolerance or patience around that would be useful as well. Yeah, it wouldn't be a sensory issue of any sort, you think? Oh, it absolutely could be. You know, that's that tight, squeezy hug. You know, we often and I've spoken about it here before, the proprioceptive type of touch, that tight, deep pressure touch that can be very regulating and calming unless you're very sensitive to touch in a way that that kind of touch can feel suffocating and overwhelming. So what is intended to be really nice can may not be nice to the other person. So it absolutely could be sensory. Yeah. Joanna, thanks a million. Uh, one tip for uh, the uh, little fella who uh, is very fussy about what he eats. Neve says they could squeeze some lemon or lime juice onto the fish. He may not notice and every little helps. Absolutely. Great idea. Yeah. And in teriyaki, you can probably kind of, you know, blend things and snake them in there. You know, the way you do with <laughs> spag ball and all that stuff. And then they spend all their time sifting through it to see can they find a straight carrot. Joanna, yeah. thanks a million. Uh, Thank as ever, uh, thanks, that's uh, Joanna Fortune there. Kieran's here. What's going up, coming up on the show, Kieran? Uh, Neffet's expected recommendation on the mask man- mandate, a change of recommendation. The Bluffer's Guide to the Winter Olympics continues curling. Uh, the uh, subject today for Barry Kenny, 20 years since six were number one. Number six, that oh. product of pop stars. Happy times, yes. And uh, hospital parking charges. So Pat or Toby in the leader of a 
explained to as a bill that's going to be debated in the Dáil tomorrow to reduce parking charges. I know this is a real bugbear for people. Uh, most people who are lucky enough only to pop into hospital the odd time like uh, myself don't really notice it. But cancer patients or the families of cancer, cancer patients talk about effectively being financially penalised mm. uh, for being sick. Now, it's a lot of money for the hospitals and they've got to get that money from somewhere else if they don't get it from parking. But I mean, as imperfect solutions go, I'm not sure if punishment for the patient is the best way to go about it. No, indeed not. That's all coming up uh, from after four o'clock. Uh, you are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a break after that. How dinosaurs could get colds. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.